Hi, I'm Megan Francis. And I'm Dave Kroc. And this is the LifeWork Podcast. In this show, we'll explore what it really takes to build a business while designing a life that matters. Why do some people feel more comfortable than others taking chances? Is the ability to take risks based on genetics or something we learn through practice? In episode 11 of Life Work, I talked to Kate Sukel, author of The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance, to find out more about the role of risk-taking in success and happiness in business and life, and how to take smart chances in both. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much, so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's kind of set up the premise of your book, um, The Art of Risk. And what is the subtitle of the book? Uh, the new science of courage, caution, and chance. Yes. Do you like the alliteration? I do. I am big on alliteration, and I love it. So, let's kind of set this up. First of all, why did you decide to write about risk as a concept? What was going on in your life, um, in your work, and that kind of thing that led you to tackle this topic? Well, in some ways, it, it, it was kind of like a bunch of little coincidences happening at once. Um, my first book was called "This Is Your Brain on Sex," and I learned about this important brain circuit. And it was funny because one of the scientists told me, you know, really this circuit, we, we talk about it like it's a love circuit, it's a pair bonding circuit, but it's really a circuit that um, processes risks and rewards. At that time, I thought that was pretty catchy and, you know, I was thinking about it because what, what greater risk is there and what greater reward than, you know, love and sex? And so that was always in the back of my mind. Um, but then, you know, I, I got divorced. I moved back to the States. I was the single mom living in suburban Houston, which can be kind of soul crushing sometimes. And I just found myself in this weird midlife crisis in reverse. Um, and I had always kind of been a risk taker. I had taken an unconventional path in life and, and thought that it was a big part of my success, you know, such that it was. And then all of a sudden, I, I really was sort of just sitting on my butt and, um, so I wanted to better understand risk. I wanted to better understand this circuit, how it applied, you know, outside of love and sex. And, and then I wanted to see if there was a way that I could get my mojo back, but, you know, in a smart way, because I, yeah. I didn't want to, you know, have like the real midlife crisis. I had no need of a boy toy in a Corvette. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to figure out a way where I could take some chances to make, you know, my writing business more meaningful. Um, where I could have more fun with my son and then maybe also, you know, introduce love back to my life. So, so okay. So I love um, that you brought up the fact that you are a writer uh, and have been independent, an independent author and writer for quite some time because that in and of itself, most people would see as a risk-taking behavior. <laughs> but I think one thing I've realized is it can become just as riskless as anything else over time. Right. So, well, yeah. That is the funniest thing about this because people, you know, when I first started writing this book, because I, I definitely tackle the science, but I also interview a bunch of real world successful risk takers. So a two-time World Series a poker champion, Andy Frankenberger. I talked to David Baskin, who is this brain surgeon that you go to when you have a tumor that everybody else says they can't take out. Okay. Um, I talked to Steph Davis, who's a base jumper, um, a bunch of other people, firefighters, Army Special Forces operators. And the funny thing is, you know, you see them and they look like superheroes, really. And when you start to talk to them about risk, they sit, sit there and go, oh, well, you know what? I don't really consider myself a risk taker. <laughs> and so like I said, I kind of thought this book was going to be writing about superheroes and these people who are so special and different. And yet, 
that's not the way it ended up. It, you know, they know their domain so well. They know what they're doing. They only see the residual risk. So I think as, as a writer who's been doing this for a while, you know, I, I certainly know that my, my paychecks don't get direct deposited automatically every two weeks like somebody who has a regular nine to five. But then, you know, I also don't have the risk of going in to, you know, the fluorescent lights in my cubicle <laughs> every day from nine to five and right. you know, having to uh, figure out how to complete my TPS reports. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's give and take and, and risk really is in the eye of the beholder. But really what makes it more manageable is knowing a particular domain. It's knowing a particular business, whether it is base jumping or freelance writing. And that's that's pretty awesome, I think. So as you dug into the research, did you come up with um, some explanations for why you felt like you were losing your mojo? Was it is it age? Does that kind of reduce our, you know, desire to <laughs> take risks? Or was it, you know, more situational? You were kind of in this comfortable, you know, sterile place. It's probably probably a bit of both because okay. you know certainly the way that we uh, approach decisions and, and the way we vet risk changes. But scientists have discovered that as we get older, um, we tend to become a lot more risk averse. And you know certainly we can tell ourselves, well, that's just because I'm older, I'm more experienced, I'm I know better, I have more at stake. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if they did this great study in Great Britain of rock climbers. So they went all across and talked to all these rock climbers of different ages and varying experience levels and, you know, then sort of tested them on, on different, uh, you know, dimensions. And what they found is older climbers, regardless of their skill level, rated themselves, um, you know, as, as less good, as less skilled. Um, as they got older, regardless of this. So these were very skilled climbers, but it just seemed there was this effect as they got older, they started to say, well, I'm not quite good enough to do that anymore. Mm. Um, There was a drop in what was called self-efficacy or confidence in their own skills. And that is something that whether we're talking about rock climbing, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, how to raise our kids, whether we're talking about how to invest, that is something that seems to happen across the board as we get older. We get very set in our routines. We get very set in our ways, a lot of automatic no's. Um, and, and yeah, it may be safer, but a lot of times we're actually missing out on, on a lot of great opportunities too. So I, I think for me, with this midlife crisis in reverse, a lot of it probably was age-related, along with, you know, trying to make sure that my mortgage was covered and my, my son was ta- well taken care of. But it also came with a whole bunch of, you know, automatic no's, like whether it was about taking a wild trip for the weekend or taking on a passion project at work, you know, I was always sort of talking myself out of it. And I think that that's something a lot of us do as we get older. And if we get better saying, okay, wait a minute, take a step back. Why am I saying no? If I did do this thing and it didn't work out, would the cost really be too great to bear? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's the old, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> and what the scientists say that whether it's a monetary lottery task in the laboratory or whether it's something else, you know, most of us would do better if we would take a few more risks. Um, and especially as we get older, because all of the successful aging studies, they show the same things. People who lead higher quality lives into advanced ages, uh, unfortunately, you know, of course, they eat right and they exercise regularly. I say unfortunately because nobody wants to hear that. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they tend to be very intellectually engaged. They have good social connections. 
They have lots of sex and they also take a lot of risks. They embrace novelty in a variety of different ways. And of course, there's a chicken and the egg problem in a lot of these studies, which is it? Do they do these things because they feel better or do they feel better because they do these things? But I, I, I don't see any uh, potential downside. Right. Doesn't really try matter. Anyway. Nothing right. else. You have some great stories to tell at the nursing home. <laughs> exactly. And is it, I mean, has science borne out that it's kind of like a muscle that you you know, that you exercise or something like, like the risk taking, um, instinct or whatever it is, is that something that you can just get more used to? So it doesn't feel as risky, I guess. Yeah. And that comes down to preparation and experience. So dealing with uncertainty, you know, dealing with novelty. Yeah. It is kind of like exercising a muscle. I mean, if, if we were to basically distill down what the brain does into one sentence, and of course it's a, it's a vast oversimplification, the brain is a prediction machine. It is trying to like filter through all this information that's outside your body around you and figure out what's important for you to pay attention to so that you can, you know, survive and, and hopefully ultimately thrive. Um, but there's so much information and there's so much uncertainty. The brain likes to take all these shortcuts. It wants to fill in the blanks however it can. Um, and as we get older, we have enough experience where it wants to try to jump and, and fill in these shortcuts with no's. Um, you know, we have all these ingrained habits. We have all these automatic responses. And a lot of times, yeah, that, that, that will keep us safe, that we won't lose anything big, but we miss out on opportunities. We miss out on joy. We miss out on new skills, learning, and, you know, probably a whole lot of fun. So I know in the book you cover um, teenagers and their risk-taking behaviors, which sounds like they're just kind of one big raw nerve of <laughs> bad decisions a lot of the time. And I'm wondering if because it gets, you know, because we sort of move away from that, from a very, and I'm sure it's biologically necessary, and I, I definitely want you to dig into that. Um, but we move away from that and then kind of go too far in the other direction where we stop taking risks. I'm wondering if if science, if the research has isolated or pinpointed like a peak age where we've stopped moving, you know, we've moved far enough away from just outright stupidity <laughs> and not yet kind of into that other place. You know, um, I don't think that they have okay. the peak age. And the thing is, I think it would vary quite a bit True. from person to person because it's always any kind of behavior is going to be a balance between, you know, exploration and experience. Um, you know, you don't want to push too far because that's when you end up, you know, uh, hurt or dead. Right. <laughs> uh, but of course, you don't want to huddle and hide in your bathtub all the time either because you, you miss out on things. But I mean, you're right. We, we talk about the teenage years like it's a, um, you know, time of just intense stupidity, immaturity. Um, and the thing is, I, I think what was most interesting for me and my kids are 10 and 11 now, so I'm, I'm just approaching this. And my daughter, especially, she is, you know, 10 going on like 45 um, so I'm really kind of afraid of the teenage years with her because uh, she's so convinced she knows it all. Uh, she's so like me; it's frightening. Yeah. Uh, which, well, it, and I, I find and I found that my ten, you know, ten, eleven, twelve, in our house was often an age of being very judgy and yes. very moralistic, and that went out the window <laughs> a little bit in the adolescent. As soon as adolescent really adolescence really hits. Oh, yeah. Well, Sorry. you know, but the thing is, is that it's not stupidity. We always talk about it, immaturity, but Mother Nature really had something in mind. So if you think about the teenage years, yes, you get obnoxious teenagers and you get attitude and you get all of that. 
you know, sort of exploration and what have you. But what you also have is a time of unprecedented learning. Mm. They, these kids are, are so motivated to get out there and try new things. And when they fail, pick themselves back up. And that's why we see this is the time when they learn to become that superstar jock or learn how to, you know, learn that new language or, you know, just totally master calculus or, you know, also master sarcasm. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's because they have this special brain setup, which really pushes them to explore and take risks. And it's there so that they can gain the experience so that they can figure out what's coming next so that their brain can be a good prediction machine. And what's funny is um, one of the researchers as I talked to about this, Abigail Baird, she actually likens the teenage years to a second toddlerhood. Mm. And when she first talked about it, I laughed, but it really is kind of the same thing, the same way that toddlers are pushing boundaries and the way that they have their little attitude and they just kind of make things up as they go along. It's exactly the same thing that you see in the teenage years. It's their brain growing and stretching and trying to figure out what the limits are. Um, so that they can go from baby to child. The same thing happens in the teenage years, so that they can go from child to adult. So how does a parent or an educator or someone who's working with these kids like harness that? Um, and, you know, it's it's like helping them use it for good, not evil, right? <laughs> so, you know, harness it and not squelch it, but also help them control right. it. Well, you know, my, my uh, pat answer for that is drink lots of alcohol, but that's not helpful. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I think it's just you understand just how powerful their motivational systems are. You find the things that really motivate them. What do they want to learn? What do they want to do? Um, because they are that that's what's going to push them in the right direction. You see the kids who really thrive. And, you know, even your nerdiest bookworms are going to become more exploratory in the teenage years. But if they see, you know, their friends and and everybody's working towards college or a great job or, you know, a a sport or what have you, if it can be directed in that way, it's not to say that college or sports or whatever has to be for everybody. But what what are they motivated by? What are they passionate about? And can you direct them through that? I think that's really the best way. Trying to fight that and tell them what they care about is dumb or stupid or whatever that as we all yeah. know from our old teenage years when our parents came back to us and said that you're not really in love right now, mm-hmm. that band's yeah. terrible or whatever, we don't listen. So yeah, find yes, what they're passionate true. about and try to direct them through that way. And well, and I, I, I think that brings up a good point too that not risk doesn't, you know, the, what we think of as typical teenage risk like drag racing or drinking till they pass out or whatever, it's not always physical. Like, they could be taking social risks or emotional risks. And there's like a different, there's lots of different kinds of ways to take risks that maybe we don't even right. see. Well, and it's also, you know, we need to learn more about the avenues in which they take risks. You know, I, I joke all the time that I'm so glad that there wasn't social media and cell yeah. phone cameras when I was a teenager oh my because my boobs would be all over the internet. <laughs> and, um, you know, so thinking about all these opportunities that kids have to make pretty impulsive choices that might stick around for a long time. Um, you know, you can't take phones or social media or maybe even Snapchat away. I know lots of parents try and, and kids find a way around it. But how do you talk to them about using them responsibly? So it's not a matter of just saying, no, that's stupid, that's dumb, mm. don't do that. Sort of it, trying to understand, well, okay, what are you, what are you trying to accomplish? What, you know, what, what tools are actually out there? What is the best way to use them? And how can you make them understand that these things really do, you know, stick around for a while? And I totally agree about villainizing a platform. I see that a lot in my circles. And it's like, well, when that's gone, something else 
yes. is going to come along. Um, and you won't know about it for a while. So <laughs> no, you think you're just friends on Facebook and yeah. it is doing just fine. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk about this in the arena of work and business. Um, one thing I thought was really interesting um, that I know you covered is intuition. And I want you to make this point, but I think that people think about that gut feeling as being something spiritual or emotional right. and not a cognitive process. And you have a very different take on it. So please like, yeah. Go a bit. So, you know, again, if we go back to this whole metaphor, the brain is a prediction machine, you know, you got Zoltar in the middle of your head trying to figure <laughs> out what's coming next. You know, it's pattern matching all the time. It's looking out at everything that you are seeing or doing, and it's it's trying to match it to your previous experiences. And so really what we talk about as being gut feelings or intuition really is just the result of that pattern matching process. And we do like to think about it like it's mystical or magical or whatever, because a lot of times it seems like an aha moment or something that's really pushing you in one direction and you don't know quite why. Um, it's unconscious, but it's just the brain saying, wait, hey, We've seen something like this before, and this is the way that we were supposed to act. And, um, of course, your brain doesn't talk to you that way. It just right. says, run, run like run. hell, <laughs> yeah. or, you know, jump on this before it disappears. Um, but, um, it, yeah, it's, it's just simply, it's, it's pattern matching. How well does the, the situation that you're encountering sync up with something that you've experienced before? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, like, I was, I'm not, like, a degenerate gambler or anything, but I go to the casino every now and then. And sometimes I'll have a very strong feeling about a certain machine. And it's funny because I'll always think, yeah, the reason you have a strong feeling about that is because you won money on it last time, dum-dum. So it doesn't yeah. really, I also have to match up that feeling against my logical brain that knows that just because I had a good experience at that machine once does not, probably means I won't ever again. <laughs> so it's like my gut is screaming one thing at me and I almost have to kind of talk myself down a little bit to not listen to that. So I wonder if there, and on the flip side, it could be some kind of other intuition or, or hunch that you could kind of line up against logic and mm -hmm. really make it work. Well, so intuition is great when, you know, these, these, the world and, and your experience sync up the right way, right? Then it's, it's going to push you in the right direction. And that's again, where preparation and doing your homework really comes in. Um, so let's just say that you spent two weeks playing that same machine and maybe you only won once and then, you know, sort of figured out, oh, gosh, I actually put $600 in this machine and it's really not that great of a bet anyway or right. whatever. Um, you know, you might have a very different feeling about it. Um, but, you know, Daniel Kahneman wrote this book a while ago, Thinking Fast and Slow, and really sort of, you know, pushed the idea that maybe we're not quite as rational decision makers as we think because we <laughs> sort of have these these two, um, you know, brain systems that, that we deal with when we make decisions. So those gut feelings, those emotions, that's really quick. It's really unconscious. So again, it's, it's not the brain saying, hey, this fits in with really well with what this thing that happened to you the last time you came to the casino. It's just sort of giving you these faint whispers of emotion of how good you felt when you won at that machine. And that's why it's pushing you over there. Um, so in that case, you really do need sort of to invoke, and sometimes you really have to work hard to invoke those slower thinking systems to say, oh yeah, that's why. It's, mm. it's not that it's a great machine or a lucky machine. It's, I won there once, but I also lost there a lot too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so really any decision, any behavior is always going to be sort of this dance between, you know, one of the researchers I talked to talked about it in terms of the brain's gas and the brain's breaks. So those fast thinking systems, the emotion, the rewards, you know, those come online really, really quickly. They want us to go for it so we can get 
the food, the sex, the money, the prestige, you know, all the great rewards in life. Um, but then those slow thinking systems, our frontal lobes, the brakes, they need to come on to tell us, if not, you know, outright, no, at least not right now, you know, hey, sex is awesome, but probably not with your boss's wife. You know, she's <laughs> totally hitting on you right now. Yeah. Or, yeah. oh, God, you know, yes, I would love, you know, I'm going to win big at the casino and that machine. But wait a minute, I only have 20 bucks to play and I'd much rather, you know, go play blackjack because I have to be here for four hours. Right. Yeah. Feed it into the, the <laughs> yeah. slot machine. That kind yeah. Of so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's okay. So taking that that kind of um, premise then and applying it to business. Did did you talk to anybody um, during your research who has been able to kind of master that dance between jumping on opportunities and seeing them when when maybe other people don't see them, mm-hmm. but making those really calculated choices? And and how much of it is luck? You know, how much of it is just kind of uh, you're just gonna guess and and throw yourself in there and and hope for the best. So th- most of them do not guess and jump in there and hope for the best. Okay. Uh, they they really do do their homework. So when we talk about business opportunities, uh, I did talk to a serial entrepreneur, and what was really striking about him, his name is John Danner, and it was funny because you know I was in Palo Alto, and I was you know talking to a bunch of people, and I kept saying I want to talk to a real risk taker, and everybody like the CFO of Netflix and a whole bunch of other people were like you need to talk to John Danner. Um, because he's he's doing all he was one of the first like internet advertising um, business people mm-hmm. made a lot of money in internet advertising you know before we even know knew how the internet was going to pay for itself right um, he now does educational startups and really sort of flies in the face of what most people would think is a it should be a successful educational way forward so for him, you know, he did these education um, startups, but he took a couple years off to become a second grade teacher. Wow. <laughs> you know, he knows what's missing from the classroom. He knows the needs of the teachers. He knows the needs of the students. He knows, worked with, you know, the government to figure out the needs of, of the difficulties and, and pain points that they're having. So he really sort of understands where the opportunities are. He'll tell you that he's a contrarian. He'll say it's really hard, um, you know, to be successful in business, especially to to stand apart when you're doing what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. Of course, as a serial entrepreneur, that's great advice. Maybe not if you're more of a worker bee. Um, But I think sometimes when you do sort of, you know, take a step back and take the contrarian point of view, it can help you push a a project in a more positive direction or at least not fall into groupthink. Yeah. Um, He's not emotional. Um, he, when he started his first educational startup, he said when he was looking to hire his president, um, he was looking to hire the person that was going to replace him because he was going to be out of there within a year. As soon as the, got, the company got too big, he was gone. And so here's something that he's you know, basically put his heart and soul into building, and he's already preparing to leave before it even gets off the ground. Um, that kind of emotional regulation and detachment is really critical as well because it means you don't take these failures personally, you don't take the setbacks personally, you use them as opportunities to figure out how to do better next time, where yeah. you need to fill the gap somewhere else. And um, then and and you're not too close to it. So I mean in the case of him hiring someone to replace him, if he was thinking he wanted to cling and hang on, he might make a le- like even subconsciously he might make less of a good hire so he could be the top banana <laughs> or you know what I mean continue to kind of be and so that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it. So I think what's, you know, any successful risk taker, whether they're throwing themselves off, you know, cliffs in a, in a wingsuit and, and a parachute or whether 
they are serial entrepreneurs or brain surgeons. You know, they're all very thoughtful and prepared. They really do know um, their stuff for in their particular domain inside and out. Um, and that means that they they really can sort of reduce the risk to a smaller portion, the uncertainty. They really kind of know the knowns and the unknowns of a, of a particular decision and what those outcomes could be. Um, we don't see, I think, when we see these business deals or we see these people on TV or our favorite protagonists, we don't see all the work that goes into a risk. We just see the outcome and when it's successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and one story I kind of like to tell is, you know, of course, all of our heroes are risk takers. I, I think a lot about J.K. Rowling. And um, she wrote the Harry Potter books. I'm sure everybody knows that if they have kids. But I put it out there because somebody's like, who's J.K. Rowling? I'm like, you are the one person in the world, <laughs> the one person in the world who doesn't know. know. <laughs> um, but, you know, her backstory, she was a single mom. She wrote the Harry Potter books like in a cafe during the day. She apparently was like, you know, desperate for money, wondering what was going to happen. She's writing this book you know, and was rejected, I think, a dozen times before she actually sold it to Scholastic. Now, let's just say that she never sold that book. Mm-hmm. What story would we be telling about J.K. Rowling right now? We'd be like, who is that? We would have no, we wouldn't be telling any story. <laughs> because well, nobody. <laughs> if her, her friends and family, her neighbors, we'd be yes. like, this crazy lady's been working on a book about a boy wizard. Yes. A boy wizard. Why can't she write, you know, something like smart, like, you know, about a talking dragon or something, right. um, you know, and wasted all this time and money on nothing. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, that sale and the success of that book changes the story. But yeah. it, was still, it was still a big risk. And so yeah. we, we changed the way we consider the risk. We changed the way that we talk about it based on the outcome. That's funny. We um, actually just did a, um, Dave, my co-host on the show, and I just did an episode a couple episodes ago where we were talking about following a passion and or 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 doing the smart thing. You know, like there always feels like there's that unnecessary dichotomy. And J.K. Rowling actually came to mind because we were talking about how, you know, we love that hero story and we love the story where someone went against all odds and made it. But yes. the fact that it was against all odds means that 99.9% of the people who are doing that same thing won't make it. And That's right. it's, you know, <laughs> it's depressing kind of sounding, but it's, it's really not because if you know that, you can still say, okay, I'm going to be that one person who's going to try really hard to push through. And, you know, maybe she wouldn't have sold the book. Uh, maybe she would have found some other way to write for a living and she'd just be one of the normals like us or, you know, it's just, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways it could play out. So it's not like the risk wasn't worth it, but you're so right that if it hadn't panned out for her and like, let's pretend vampires got hot before they did. And so she missed the wizard trend or something, you know, like she submitted it a month too late and vampires had already taken over or whatever. I mean, there's just so many forces at work beyond your talent and efforts um, and that sounds a little bit, I don't know. I hate to sound so cynical because to me, it's not even cynical to me. It's like, yeah, take the risk, but have a backup plan and, and have it be very measured, whatever it is. Well, something- and that's the thing, you know, I'm about to start my, my big risk that I'm taking this summer is I'm going to start writing fiction mm-hmm. and I've done it a little bit for fun before, but I'm, I'm, you know, I did NaNoWriMo once a few years ago or whatever, but I'm really going to do it. But am I going to give up everything to write this novel that I may not sell? No. What right. I'm doing is I'm rearranging my schedule for the summer, so I have two hours to write every workday, um, and I'm I'm cutting back, but not cutting off my yeah. income. So I'm going to try to do this, but I'm going to try to do this, you know, in a in a measured way, so that again, you know, the loss wouldn't be too great to bear. 
Yeah. And, you know, maybe you would have made a different choice at 22, but you wouldn't have had a child. You may have, your lifestyle may have already been very bare bones. I mean, there's, there is something to the idea that you just don't have as much to lose and you still have so much time left when you're young. Well, that's actually when I go around and do talks about risk, you know, that's, that's another thing, you know, the way we not just even discussing, you know, risk in terms of extremes. If we tell the story about, uh, so a man gets the opportunity to tour, um, as a backup guitarist with his favorite band and it's for a six month tour, should he go or shouldn't he go? And then you start the conversation and first you say, okay, well, he, he's 19, uh, he's in his sophomore year of college. Should he leave college to go do it? And most people say, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Then you change the story. He's 43. He has two kids at home. Yeah. And wife. Should he go? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it, it, it's interesting how, how we sort of change up when we think it's appropriate to take these risks and when it's not. Yeah. So you're going to be writing some fiction. Um, Did researching the book help you kind of come to any other conclusions about life and risk and how you can make those measured risks in your own life? Yeah. I mean, I think the great news is, you know, one of the things I learned is that risk taking, it's not a personality type. It's it's a decision making process. And so that means that all of us can kind of harness it, um, you know, and use it to to help us reach our long-term goals. But the other great thing about this process is it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't mean that we all have to go out and start skydiving or, you know, decide to take the year off to go trek through Nepal. They can be just little changes, little things that you change up every day to embrace more novelty and risk. And and like you said, work it like a muscle so you get more accustomed to it. Um, so I'm doing more passion projects. I'm, I'm actually, you know, saying no in, instead of uh, Shonda rhymesing it and saying yes to everything. I'm <laughs> yeah. actually saying no more often unless it's a project that I think, it, you know, it, I, I'm really sort of looking at is this going to be worth not just the money but the time? Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that's, that's going to help me move myself forward? Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to try this fiction and that's, that's a passion project. Um, I got remarried, which has been great. Um, cause I sort of thought about it in a different way. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I am just taking more time to em- embrace life and embrace opportunity. Who was your favorite, um, interview in the story or in the book? Um, I would love to hear a little more about their story to give listeners kind of a peek into the book and maybe tantalize them to want to read it. Um, you know, I actually love talk. So, uh, I mean, David Baskin, who's the neurosurgeon, he invited me to come watch him perform neurosurgery. And I was in the OR and literally standing over, I could see him, like, I don't want to say monkeying about in this patient's <laughs> brain, but, you know, it was kind of amazing because I am a brain nerd and, and you know, a scientist by training to see him open up a skull and actually, you know, work on, on the very parts of the brain that, I, you know, the circuit that I was kind of discussing. Yeah. So that was a big deal for me. Um, but really, you know, Andy Frankenberger, he's a two-time World Series, the poker champion. He's very thoughtful. He was a lot of fun to talk to. Um, Steph Davis, she is a free solo climber um, and a uh, base jumper. She was actually, you may know her name because she was one of the people that Cliff Bar okay, yeah, from the sponsorship contract about a year ago saying that she was too risky. Yes. I, I knew that I knew the name and I couldn't mm-hmm. remember why. Yeah. She was the only woman of the, the, the seven or eight people that they released from their sponsorship deals. Um, Cause they didn't want people to think they could eat a cliff bar and then go 
<laughs> dangle off the side of a mountain. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. what's so funny about Steph Davis is, you know, she's, she's, you know, a total badass. There's no question about it. Um, but she's also a very thoughtful, very measured. She's kind of a homebody, mm-hmm. you know, she's like, she's somebody that you would probably be just as likely to, you know, be next to in yoga class mm-hmm. as, you know, see her jump off a, jump off a cliff in her wingsuit. So she was a really fascinating interview for me because I think she really challenged a lot of the stereotypes I had. Uh, And like I said, I kind of thought I was starting this book. I was going to be writing about like these superheroes and what makes them so different. And she really was sort of the first person to make me realize, wait a minute, she's, I mean, granted, she, she may throw herself off cliffs and climb these impossibly high peaks with no ropes whatsoever, but she really isn't all that different from from me. And yeah. I thought that was really fascinating. And and like you said, you know, it, yeah, it looks scary as hell to us. But every little thing that goes into that, I'm sure, is as calculated as can be. You know, every everything that she's wearing or every motion she's making, I, there's there's a science to it, right? Yeah, she she was the first one to say, you know, I feel like people only ever see the outcome. They don't mm-hmm. see the hard work that goes into it. Uh, she was one of the the first. Um, she was like the first woman to do this climb. I think it was called Salante, but it was in Yosemite and this very very hard climb. And she free saloted it. Was the first woman to do so. Um, and she's like, you know, people saw me do it. You know, there's video or what have you, but nobody saw that I worked on that for years. I talked to everybody who had climbed it to to get their ideas of how to deal with certain cracks. I worked on it with ropes so I could figure out how to make my way this way. I was working every day when I was back in Utah, you know, trying to figure out how, you know, getting myself more in physical shape, bouldering, you know, building up my, my physical prowess to do it. Um, and you know, it, it really does make a difference. And she says, nobody, nobody wants to hear that though. They just want to see the amazing feat <laughs> yeah. at the end. They don't want yeah. to see all the hard work that goes right. into it. Yeah. Um, earlier you mentioned novelty and, um, sort of getting the brain used to the idea of novelty or to like novelty. And I remembered that I had read an article not too long ago about how some brains, some brains are wired, I guess, to seek novelty more so than others. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there's a tie there with people who are more risk-taking by nature. Um, I think there is. The thing is, you know, in the psychological community for a long time, we've talked about risk-taking, um, sort of synonymously with things like sensation seeking, which would be, you know, people who, who sort of seek out more stimulation in life, also people who can handle more stress, and then also more impulsive behavior. Hmm. Um, but what the brain science is doing is it's really showing that these th- three things are a little bit different. So risk is this decision-making process. And when you really sort of boil it down to a simple thing, it's part and parcel of every decision you make every day, whether that is a million dollar business deal or whether or not to have that third cup of coffee, knowing that it might give you the jitters later. Right. Um, You know, it's it, it really is part of every little decision. Impulsive behavior is, of course, you know, acting without thinking about the long term consequences. And we do see teens do that. And some adults, of course, have a lot of problems with it. And impulsive behavior leads to a lot of, you know, sort of the negative risk taking. And of course, those those downsides like danger, death, incarceration, addiction, etc. But yeah, some people are just wired to want more sensation in life. And some of them may, you know, push out and and have hero type careers because they need that level of stimulation in their life. Uh, they may be more likely to, to bungee jump or jump out of planes or drive fast. But 
they may, depending on what opportunities are around them, just be the type of person that's more likely to come home and pick a home, uh, pick up, you know, fight with their spouse at night, right? Because they need that kind of stress and stimulation to keep them going. Yeah. Oh, so um, really quickly back to your, um, you know, you're in the operating room and you said that you, that the surgeon was working on the part of the brain that you had been researching. So yeah. is he? Is he? Does he specialize in conditions that affect that? area of the brain or uh, he specializes in brain tumors. So basically tumors. So he, all he was working to, to <laughs> remove the tumor from, from the frontal lobe of her brain. Okay. So because the there are certain types of tumors that can affect, that can really affect your risk taking yeah. and impulse control. Right. So, uh, so talk about that a little bit. Cause I think that's something that doesn't occur to a lot of people. Well, it's not just, it's not just, there's also a disease state. So you see right. with a lot of uh, mental health conditions, a lot of problems with uh, assessing risk, and then also impulsive behavior. Um, so, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, what have you. Um, you see people who have Parkinson's disease and certain neurodegenerative disorders also have problems vetting risk and making decisions. Um, you know, we think about Parkinson's disease as being, you know, the tremors, the movement, mm. but they really have a tough time with decisions. And in fact, um, some of the drugs that are given, um, the, the dopamine-producing drugs, make it so they actually end up in this position where they're, they're sort of hyper-impulsive. There's hypersexual behavior, gambling problems, that kind of thing. So that can affect the brain. Uh, there's certain types of brain damage. You can see problems with impulse control and, and then also to a certain extent vetting risks uh, with uh, um, traumatic brain injury or concussion. Um, so there really are a lot of things that can kind of disrupt this circuit that, you know, that, that runs between the gas and the brakes and helps you decide when, when you're supposed to, you know, push forward and when you're supposed to hold back. That's so interesting. Um, well, I, I have to wrap up, but I did want to ask you, you know, someone who's listening to this show and is in a position where they need to make a decision and they want to make a smart calculated, but not entirely risk-free, <laughs> you know, they want, what, do you have like a process that you go through now when you're trying to make a big decision? Um, do you break it down? How are, how are you doing that? And, and what, how has your research helped you kind of hone that? Well, I think, you know, so, you know, I talked about the brain filling, I'm saying, you know, way too often. Um, the brain, you know, tries to fill in these blanks. So I think understanding these shortcuts that the brain takes, you know, if you go to the whole G.I. Joe mantra of knowing is half the battle, um, <laughs> you know, I think that helps you a lot. What I do now is I try to be more self-aware. Mm. Of course, mindfulness is a, is a big word these days. I think sometimes it's overused, but I, I do think that once you understand how neurobiology biologically, you know, we sort of approach situations, these kind of shortcuts and heuristics that the brain takes, you can take a step back and ask yourself, you know, okay, wait a minute, why am I pushing forward? Why am I holding back? Um, am I the kind of person that, that tends to be impulsive? Do I need to take a step back every once in a while and ask myself, wait a minute, is this really a good idea? Mm -hmm. Am I the kind of person that holds back too much, you know, just by nature? Maybe I need to, you know, give myself a little pep talk and, and push forward, even though it feels pretty intense. So I think understanding what kind of baseline risk taker you are is really helpful. And then just being aware of that and then asking yourself, okay, what would happen if I do this? Would, you know, any loss really be too great to bear? And, and what could the potential outcomes be that would be great? Because that's the thing. We talk about risk so often in terms of danger. But the other side of that coin is opportunity. Hmm. And by, you know, 
automatically saying, no, we're missing out often on so many great opportunities to learn, to grow, to have fun, to build our businesses, to have happier lives. Um, so I, I, I think that self-awareness is key. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Kate. Um, if anyone wants to find you, where's the best place to find you and your book? Sure. So you can find The Art of Risk wherever books are sold. And you can find <laughs> me at katesukel.com. It is K- Kate with a Y. Yeah, Kate with a K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L. Yeah, funny sounding. Um, and you can, of course, always find me oversharing on Twitter as at Kate Sukel, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L. Sounds great. Thanks so much for being on. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Life Work Podcast. Build your business and design your life with us every day, Monday through Friday. And find us at lifeworkpodcast.com.